doing the book of Hebrews today. Really neat book. It's a masterpiece. Uh, it's like a literary masterpiece. It's, it's, it's what put together in an amazing way. It was written around 64, 65 uh, BCs before they destroyed the temple. So they're able to date it pretty clearly. Here's the thing. We don't know who wrote it. Um, the traditional author is Paul, but there is no, he doesn't say, I, Paul, I'm writing to you the Hebrews. He doesn't say that, and he usually says that on every other letter. And although some of it seems and sounds a little bit like Paul, specifically because he mentions Timothy in the end, we just don't know who wrote it. And I don't think it's stylistically similar, but I don't think it's Paul's voice. I mean, not that it really matters, but I just don't think that it's Paul. There's some theories that, that say that it was Apollos or uh, maybe even Priscilla. <gasps> A woman that wrote a book of the Bible, but we don't know. It's anonymous. So uh, let's read the, chapter 1, verse 1, and then we'll get into the context and how it applies. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times in various ways. But in these last days, he spoke to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he has made the universe. It's a pretty powerful statement. The sun, this is the best part. Underline this, this is so beautiful. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. That is Jesus. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word, and he has provided purification for sins. He's provided that. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And then the author goes on to contrast Jesus with all the other important spiritual aspects that we usually associate. In chapters one and chapters two, he, he contrasts Jesus with angels and the Torah. The Torah is your Bible. This is, you know, he, so what, what he says in the beginning, or maybe she says, we don't know, but what he says in the very beginning, says that Jesus is better than angels. I mean, you might, oh, you think, oh, no, duh, whatever, right? But actually, I think it's a very important statement because, you know, we sometimes, especially believers, we just get so used to Jesus that we want something a little more flashy. We want something a little better, and angels are pretty cool, so why don't we just go after angels for a while? And angels are very cool, by the way. I like them. But I like Jesus better, right? And uh, here's what, this, is, this one will probably hit home a little bit closer, but he goes on to say that Jesus is better than your Bible. This is a tough one because everything that we know about Jesus comes from the Bible, right? So it's kind of like, what am I supposed to do with this? But here's the thing that we tend to do as Christians, that we like our, we like our rule books and we like our law, and sometimes we just put the Bible on the pedestal and we worship that instead of Jesus. And that is a big, big problem. Because Jesus is better than the Bible. 
He goes on to talk about Moses. Moses was pretty cool. But then he says, no, no, Moses was, you know, he led the people out of slavery. He parted the sea. He did all these amazing things. But Jesus is superior to Moses. In chapters 3 and 4, he talks about um, the priests. So if you've been following along in our series, especially if we went in the Old Testament, uh, the, the priests were the ones that were the mediators between God's people and God because, I don't know, they were all messed up. And so somebody had to do something. Somebody had to step in. Somebody had to offer their sacrifices. And you might think that, well, it doesn't necessarily apply to me today, but actually I think that it does because throughout this week, it's been a tough week. You know, people have died. I buried people. You know, it's just, you know, Mary and Barry. I haven't married. Well, these are the last ones I married. But I've buried, I think, three people after that, so my ratio's off. Anyway, um, throughout the week, as, as a pastor, you get this statement. Pastor Josh, would you pray for me? And what am I going to say? No. Of course I'm going to pray for you. And then we pray for you guys every single Tuesday, Right? And so the, the same priestly office or role still applies because it's kind of hardwired into us. But here's what you got to get. It's that Jesus is better than your priest. Jesus is better than me. Um, I give you the permission to cut out the middleman. You get to go, you get, this is why you don't want to do it, because it requires relationship and it requires responsibility. It's easier for me to pray for you than you to actually engage with Jesus. But the author says Jesus is better than the priest. He's better than the pastor. He's better than your spiritual guru. He's better than that conference speaker that's going to dump knowledge on you and you get a little, you know, information high or whatever. No, no, Jesus is better than all of that. He is so much better. And you have the opportunity to go directly through to the source. Yes, I will pray for you. But if we continue that dysfunctional relationship where that's all I'm doing is interceding for you, we've completely missed the mark, beloved. You need to go directly to him. You can. You have authority to do that. You have permission to do that. You're called to do that. The author says, no, see, Jesus is better than the priest. He's better than that line of, David, the line of Aaron, excuse me, the, 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 the priestly lineage. In fact, Jesus is not like that. He is better than that law. He is more like a priest king in the order of Melchizedek. I just like saying the word Melchizedek. (laughs) But if you were with us in Genesis, did I do Melchizedek when I did Genesis? Probably. Uh, But Abraham, Abraham, the father of our faith, the father of a couple of other faiths, um, he put his faith and his trust and his hope in God, and he went to war believing that he would win because he had God on his side, and he, he defeated the seven evil kings. And as he is bringing his plunder and his wealth and his success into, uh, I guess he's bringing it home, he's encountered in the field. It's a really mysterious, mystical, divine encounter with this priest king from Salem, or soon 
to be Jerusalem. Before there was a David, before there was a city of God, there was this mysterious place called Salem, and Melchizedek was this high priest king. He was a hybrid. He did both roles. He was your priest, and he was your king. And so he meets Abraham in the midst of his success, Most of the time that we think that God is only going to meet us in our failures and in our hurt and in our pain, and that is shallow thinking because God wants to meet you in your success too. He is waiting for you on the other side of the line, and he's going to want to know what you are going to do, what you will choose with the success that you have. And Abraham made the right choice. The priest king comes to him, and he offers him Wine and bread. And we have the very first communion taking place on the battlefield. It's so cool. Uh, Melchizedek was most likely Jesus. Isn't that cool? We don't know. Again, it's mystery, but I'd like to think that it was. Abraham says, I give you one-tenth of my percent. I give you my, this is yours, I'm giving it back to you. I'm putting um, God's mark on my finances because I have been successful and I want to continue to be successful. And so Jesus is not in the, the Levitical line of Aaron. No, he is better than Aaron. He is in the order of Melchizedek, right? And then, He says, Jesus is even better than the contract. He is better than the deal that God set up with the people of of, the children of Israel. No, he's better than that. In fact, he is introducing into this relationship a new deal, a new contract, and Jesus is far superior than anything that you could possibly think of. Jesus is, he is good enough. I think in our Christian walk, and our Christian faith, we get used to Jesus, we get used to the cross, it becomes really familiar. We understand, I don't know, maybe, we understand atonement, sacrifice, justification, sanctification, righteousness, maybe we understand that, maybe we don't, but we do understand the cross, we understand the price that was paid, but then eventually, after a while, it begins to wear down. And then you begin to look for other things. Why? Because Jesus isn't good enough. But what the writer of Hebrews is saying to us today, no, no, he is good enough. He is all that you need. You don't need to go. You don't need another class or a conference. You have it all. The day that you receive Jesus into your heart, you have everything. All right, so let's read a couple of verses. I'll get into the heart of it. We're going to be talking about two things. We know the famous verse, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is what? Love. But we're not talking about love today. We're going to be talking about hope and faith. Hope and faith is pretty much the theme of Hebrews. We have to have hope and faith. Verse 11. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for, and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. I really want to know who the ancients were. I mean, there's a lot of different theories, but 
Maybe they were ancient aliens. I know, just kidding. <laughs> All right, listen to these other translations of this verse. Okay, do you understand? So faith is... New American Standard says it this way. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things that are not seen. Right? King James. Now, faith is the substance. That's different. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And Holman says... Now, faith is the reality of what is hoped for and the proof of what is not seen. So faith, what does faith look like, right? Can you actually put your finger on faith? Faith is this really ethereal thing, right? What is faith? Can you tell me what it is to, to be a man or a woman of faith? It's very difficult to do, right? You can't see faith. But whoever, this is why I think it might have been Priscilla, because this is a masterpiece. The Greek, it basically means all the different things. It is, uh, faith is the assurance, it is the substance, it is the reality. And these are all tangible things. So faith, what his, his, his desire is that faith becomes real. Faith becomes tangible, that faith is a substance. And so when we begin to walk in faith, you've heard that Christianese word before, right? Walking in faith. Let's go on, walk in faith this week. What does that mean? I don't know what that means. It means that you're going to try to walk on water and then the pool will not sink. What does that actually mean? No, what it, what it means to walk in faith, it means that you will have some substance from it. Like, there will be some fruit of it. You will know that once you took that risk and you made that choice to walk in faith, you will see something change in our reality. It's already changed in heaven, but now it's going to begin to take place in our reality. We will see substance change. Now, here's the greatest gift. I believe this. This is a big part of my theology. There will be people, there's theologians that don't agree with this, You can continue to go to this church and disagree with this because it's, I guess you could say, you know, it's a, it's a negotiable, whatever. No, I believe, this is, this is where it gets, this is, this is tricky. I believe that the greatest gift that God gave mankind was the ability to choose to love him back. I believe that that is the greatest gift God gave us, is that we have the power of choice, that we, that we really are free to decide each and every day, each and every moment, we can choose to believe. Some of our brothers and sisters don't believe that. It's okay. I'm right, they're wrong. Um, <laughs> But it's so important to me. I, I feel like I need to choose. I, God has made me a free moral agent. I am made in his image. Imago Dei. He is creative. Therefore, I am in his image. I am creative. I can create something out of nothing. I create a lot of messes. Right? But that's the... Because God wants me to do that. He wants me to... to 
Josh, you are free to do whatever you want to do. In fact, you are free to love me back. I am not going to force you to love me. I believe that's God's greatest gift to humanity. And the second greatest gift was his son, Jesus, who came in and paid the price for our bad decisions. So, faith is the assurance, it's the substance, it's the reality of things that are unseen that become real in our everyday life. And so how do we get it? And I believe that we get it by choosing faith. And I think it's every day. I think each and every day that we wake up, we have to choose to believe this stuff. Do you guys realize how crazy we are that we actually believe this stuff? Like the people from the outside world are looking at us like, you guys are crazy. Why do you believe that? Have you ever read part of the Bible to somebody and maybe it was, I don't know, one of the convicting ones and like, whatever. Like it had no impact or bearing on them whatsoever. You're like, I'm going to read the word of God to you and you just think that this is going to penetrate their spirit and it falls flat. It's because... God hasn't called them. The word of God is foolishness to those that, is, that, that he hasn't called. But we know that his will is that everybody comes to a saving grace. All right. All right, here's where I'm going to push on everybody. Because it's been our experience lately. Uh, when we do altar calls... We get only get a few, which is okay. But what does that tell us? That tells us that everybody in the room, that you guys are all Christians. We're all going to heaven. How's that feel? Right? Isn't that cool? All right. And I would say that most of us in this room don't even have any insecurities about declaring their faith publicly. Like, you probably tell your neighbors that you're a Christian, or you probably tell your friends that you're a Christian, right? I don't think there's probably any insecurities or hang-ups on that. Maybe for some of us, that if you're in a hostile environment, and, like, you know, your boss is an atheist, you, don't, you might want to keep it to yourself. But for the most part, you're not going to deny your Savior in public. So I think we're all okay with that part of our identity of us being Christians. Right? Are you holy? I'm okay with the saying I'm, so, I'm a Christian, but are you okay with saying that you're holy? Look, I'm your pastor, and I have a hard time saying it, right? But that is what God has called us to, is to holiness, and is to a lifestyle of holiness. Now, If we're Christians, if we believe what Jesus did on the cross, if we believe in his words that said that it is finished, that he died and he resurrected from the grave for our sins, that we are, and again, this is all Christianese, that we are a new creation, right? 
You've heard me preach this. We're a new creation in Christ. Let's put on the robe of righteousness. Let's, you know, you've heard this. Okay? So if we're Christians, why do we still sin? Why do we still walk in failure? Why are we still grumpy? Why are we still defeated? Let's get back to the area of sin. Why do we, why do Christians sin? I, there's only there's two reasons why. One, which is the scary one, is that you went to the crusade, you said some magic words, and you think that you're saved, but you're not, right? Because, you, you know, you got, you got the emotional high from the band, and the speaker jacked you up. Maybe you even cried a little bit, but you woke up Monday morning, and you're just, nothing changed in you. And how do you know? Well, all right, let's go the other way. So let's say that, you, that the Holy Spirit did enter your heart at the crusade, and you accepted Jesus as your personal Savior. And you believed in your heart, and you confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and it's real. Yet you still live in sin. How does that work? All right, here's, I think this is probably a good telltale. Um, don't raise your hands. I did this first service, and everybody like raised their hands, so, but you don't have to. Um, if you did something naughty and you felt bad about it, have you ever did, have you ever sinned and then you felt really bad about it? You're probably okay. The Bible is the law highlights sin. The law brings sin to the surface. It shines the light on it, and it's that corrective thing, right? That, that whatever. And so if you, if, you, if you hear the law and then the immediate reaction is guilt and shame, well, that's, that's like, it's be encouraged. Like, be encouraged in that. Because if you have no spiritual moral compass, like if you are living in sin and you hear the, the word of God that says that this is sin, and, you, and it's like, I don't really care because I don't really view it as sin, well, then, then you're in the first camp. You're in the camp that, that said the magic words, but it didn't take, you know, you didn't mean it. Because you have no respect to the word of God. So there's it. But I need to get into the area of where we are. So right now I'm assuming that everybody is okay. Like, we got the ticket to heaven, we're all going. But let's talk about why do we still sin? Again, there's two things. One is that you were never saved to begin with. Two, no one told you that you are no longer a sinner when you receive Jesus. Really? This is where we get all messed up and jacked up in church life because you've heard this said before. Oh, Brother Josh, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Then I don't really want to hang out with you. I want to hang out with holy people. If I want to hang out with sinners, I'll go sell antiques again. <laughs> Where I, you know. I understand, the, I understand the sentiment of that. 
but it is wrong thinking for a believer to say, I am a sinner saved by grace. It's a true statement once. It is a true statement that only happens one time. You were once a sinner, but because of the work that Jesus did on the cross, that is no longer your identity. Fathers that have Jesus living in your hearts, you are not a sinner. You are a man of God. And maybe you lost your temper on the freeway. But you're not a sinner. Your identity has been completely transformed because of the work that God, Jesus did on the cross. It is finished, all of it. And so the reason why we continue to live in sin is because we say stupid stuff like, I am a sinner saved by grace. If that's what you believe about yourself. If you continue to believe that about yourself, guess what? It's going to continue and continue and continue to perpetuate itself over and over and over again. I can't tell you how many t- times I, I'm counseling people, and they are, they are so guilt-ridden and so jacked up, and they keep on saying, I am such a horrible, dirty, disgusting person. And I'm looking at them like, no, you're not. You're a man of God, you're a woman of God, and you just, you resurrected your corpse for a, for a moment. But God doesn't see you that way, and you need to quit declaring yourself that way because you are living under the law. You're living under the Torah. I'll even push it a little bit further. You're living under the Bible, and you're not in Jesus because Jesus is better than the law. So most of Christians are living under the law, but they're not living in the new covenant, which is completely new identity. Because the Bible talks about sin, talks about our previous life of sin, does that mean that we continue to live and identify with sin? All right, here's the the best practical example that I've got. It's Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous. Amazing program, like transformational, life-saving program. How many people would be willing to admit that they went through program? All right, God bless you guys. You did it. And here's what happens when you do a program. You get around the circle, and what do you say? My name is Amanda. I'm an alcoholic. Yes. Thank you, Brenda. Good. We're on the right path. Because you're not that anymore. You're no longer an alcoholic. And the guys and gals that sit around the circle year after year and they continue to say, I am an alcoholic. They are an alcoholic. They might have been dry for 10 years, but there's still that alcoholic mentality and lifestyle. We have people in this church that have said, you know what? Uh, I thank God for AA, I thank God for program, and when I came and I got the support that I needed, it got me out of a deep, dark place. God brought AA into my life to save me. God brought AA in my life to introduce me to the higher power, and because that higher power came into my body in that AA meeting, 
I was drawn to the body of Christ. And this is where I began to understand who and what and how the higher power works and functions and flows through me. And because of this truth, I no longer have the desire or need to call myself an alcoholic because my new identity is completely attached and framed in Christ. We get that, right? It's an amazing thing. We have a number of them in our church. Like, they just don't go to meetings anymore. Like, I, you know, people always try to talk them into meetings. Like, no, I don't want to go. I just, God bless you, and I'll support you. I'll, I'll be your sponsor, but I'm not going to the meetings. I'm not going to say that anymore. Because I don't believe that about myself. It's cool, isn't it? But you see, we have the same condition spiritually. If we continue to sit around in our small groups, in our ministry time, and if we continue to say, I am a sinner. Do you see the, do you see the parallel? It is a direct parallel. It's true. You are a sinner because that's what you believe about yourself. All right, let me push you a little bit harder. How do you like this one? I am broken. I am broken. I don't know, maybe, you, maybe you, you've been hurt. Maybe you are. I don't know. Maybe that is your experience. But that's not truth. Because once you receive Jesus into your heart, you are whole. So God views you from heaven as the whole person, and the only reason why you are broken is because that is what you believe about yourself. C.S. Lewis says is that we become what we believe. And so this is why the gift of faith, to be able to choose every single day who we are in Christ is critical to your spiritual journey right now. Every day we have to make that choice. What makes God happy? No. Sorry. <laughs> All right, I'll just read. Sorry. Sorry, buddy. All right, here it is. Weren't you here first service? <laughs> and without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Because God wanted to make his unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled, who have left, 
who have repented, you can add these into your Bible if you want. This is uh, chapter 6, verse 17. We who have fled, we have taken hold of hope. And offered to us, we have taken hold of the hope offered to us that may be a, a greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. All right, hope offered to us so that we may be greatly encouraged. All right. To make God happy, you have to have faith. That's it. You have to believe. That's the only thing that you have to do. You have to have that faith. To make you happy, you have to have hope. So there's your assignment. I want you to make God happy. And I want you to make yourself happy. And the only way that you can make yourself happy, to be encouraged, to encourage yourself, is to have this hope. I mean, what does it say again? It says, we have this hope. And what is it? It is an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. So hope is the anchor to the soul. And you, and Philippians, uh, Ephesians 14 says that we are, uh, we are in- infants, we are, we are little babies, and we're tossed on the waves by teachings and revelations and by all these, by, by temptation and sin. We are little boats on this water and we're just getting wrecked and we're getting mulled over and we're Christians and we're losing and we're, we're, we're sinning and we're just like, oh, I don't know what's going on, I'm falling apart. I'm broken. I'm lost. I'm hurting. I'm a sinner. Declaring all these things. And hope is our anchor. So if you're sad, if you're depressed, you need to find your hope in Jesus. This is my little illustration. It's been here for years. It's not the first time I've done this. But hope, this is, this is why the anchor is in the building, because hope is our anchor, and we need to have this lifeline. So you are on the ocean, and you've got to drop your hope line down, and it's got to go way deep. Your hope has to run so deep that it, just, it hits the very bottom and the depth of your soul. Like, if you're struggling, and if you're lost, and if you're depressed, and if you're hurting, you need this. You need the hope. Faith, hope, and love, right? The greatest of these is love. And so through love, through Christ's love that he did on the cross, you find your hope, and you get it, and you hang on to it, and it is heavy, and it is awkward. It doesn't feel right. And you dig it in to the rock. You dig it into Jesus. You take this thing and you drive it as hard as you can into Jesus and your very firm foundation and you make sure it never lets go and you choose each and every single day to put your faith and your hope in Christ Jesus. Because if you don't, you are gonna continue to believe things about yourself that just aren't true. Paul says, I am, be perfect as I am perfect. Isn't that a tall order? Your your circumstances don't prove to you that you're perfect, but God sees you as being perfect. 
So let's change the way that we think about ourselves. Actually, let's begin to think correctly, biblically, instead of saying, I am a sinner. And when you begin to say, I am a saint, instead of saying, I am a basket case, you say, I am holy. And you become what you believe. Do you see the power in that? You become what you believe, well, then we'll be leading people to the Lord every single Sunday. All right. Let's get the band come up. Let's pray. And then after I pray and the worship was going to start, I'm going to send you off with a blessing. You're free to go now when the song plays, but we're just going to continue just to see what God does. And if you want to hang out and worship with us longer, you may. Um, But a couple things. Um, 1 Corinthians 12 says that faith is also a spiritual gift. So the initial action is our ability to choose faith. But what do the guys say to Jesus? I believe, help my unbelief. And so among the spiritual gifts, there's, you know, the spiritual gift of prophecy and healing and um, all the cool tongues and all the good stuff. But there's also a gift of faith. And so what Jesus did to this guy is he just amped that guy's faith up. And he'd be able to walk in something that he didn't have before. How many people need faith for something that you just don't have? And so there's going to be a transcendent gift of faith that will be given to you today. Because you, you, you don't have because you don't ask. I think you all have salvation grace, but now you need some empowering grace. So we're going to pray for the, the, the supernatural gift of faith. If you'd like to receive that, uh, we'll be praying for people back there and over here. So if you need that, I want to encourage you to do that. If um, maybe, maybe you fall into the camp where you said the sinner's prayer at the crusade, but you really didn't mean it. Or maybe you got baptized because mommy and daddy wanted you to get baptized, but you really didn't mean it. Uh, I would love, and if you just feel the Holy Spirit tugging on your heart for it, Jesus to dwell and wreck and ruin your life. That's a good thing, by the way. Uh, We'd love to introduce you to Jesus. So those are the two things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray you just bless this group of people. I pray right now that your spirit would just pour out on them. I pray that there would just be a, a, a balm, an oil of the spirit that would just flow over their minds and that would just begin to break down these, these uh, unbiblical utterances that says I'm a sinner, that I am a loser, that I am a train wreck, that I am a basket case, that I am broken. God, and I pray that we would just begin to declare what you have said about us and what you do believe in us from heaven and how you view us from heaven. 
because your word says that at the cross, everything was finished. And so we don't have to go through it again and again and again. That once was enough, that Jesus was enough, that Jesus is good enough, that he is better than anything that we could possibly want or imagine, that just believing in him, just having faith in him is all the empowerment that we need to do the good works. So Father, right now, I just pray that we will do the work of God and just have faith and believe in him, Lord. Just minister to us. May we just drop that anchor right now. May we just drop that anchor in the storm and make it go down into the very depths of who we are. And may it find its root and its source and its anchor in Jesus today. Because Jesus is good. I pray right now that we will just attach ourselves to the mystical union of Christ. Christ alive inside of us. Being in him and through him, God. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing right now in individuals. For the revelation that was shared that they are a man of God, a woman of God. Thank you, God. Bless our worship.